Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He's a journalist, an activist, a best-selling author, and college professor who has never turned his back on his hometown of Baltimore. Dee Watkins' latest book, We Speak for Ourselves, A Word from Forgotten Black America, is being called a must-read for all who are committed to social change. The book is poised to be another bestseller, and even with all his success, when it comes to his East Baltimore neighborhood, Watkins writes, success for me isn't about making it out, it's about making it better. Dee Watkins, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you're on book tour. You've been to a bunch of different cities. How's it going? It's cool. Um, I've never stopped touring from my first book. So <laughs> like, um, I'm always getting invited to high schools and some middle schools, but like jails and bookstores and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's crazy. Like you write something like four or five years ago and people are just discovering you and then they look up your other work and then it's like, hey, can you come out? So it's been it's I've, I've been lucky. Mm-hmm. All three of your books are very focused on Baltimore and your experience in Baltimore. So I'm curious when you travel to other cities, do people relate to that experience or um, do you feel like what you've experienced is being experienced in so many other cities in the same way or is it a little different? So Baltimore is my home, um, a place that I love a lot. But at the same time, every book is is full of certain universal truths, and those truths connect us. So you can be, you know, a Latino person in Texas and feel some of these things. You can be a white person in Oakland and feel some of these things. You can be a black person in, I don't know, Alaska, and (laughs) (laughs) some of these experiences might speak to you. And I think um, that's what memoir does. It's that one genre that allows everyday regular people like myself to get their stories out and connect with other people um, and makes the world smaller in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Take it back for people who don't know your story. So tell me a little bit about you. You grew up in East Baltimore. Yeah, I'm, I'm from East Baltimore. Um, I grew up in, in what you would call a drug family. So that was like um, what was handed down to me. I was instructed and, and told to go to college and I didn't really know I didn't really know why because uh, I mean I knew why from like a general sense but when I was filling out like my neighborhood and looking at what other people did you know there, there wasn't really like a lot of examples for me but you know I listened and um, I got in, you know I buckled down and did my work and got into some schools and around that same time my older brother was killed so um, I didn't go to college initially I took like a little like a half a year off but then mm-hmm. I actually went back I actually went to school, and it was cautious shock. It was a world that I didn't really understand, mainly because um, Baltimore's a black city, and, you know, your friends are black, and the people you play ball with are black, and the people you play against are black, and, you know, everybody's black, even some of the white people. So, like, um, <laughs> you know, you, you have some white teachers, and there's, like, white police officers and things like that, but they're not really your peers. These are, like, you know, people in, like, authoritative positions. Mm-hmm. So... In college, if you go into a reality where that's what it is, um, it didn't really feel like home for me. And I didn't have like a mentor 
or like a person to pull me aside and say, yo, look, if you go into this school and it's full of white people, you should learn how to play acoustic guitar. And you should <laughs> like, you know, understand there's different types of male. No, but I didn't have anybody tell me like um, how to learn, how to openly embrace and accept and understand different cultures because I was so used to just being drenched in my own. Sure. And those people at the school probably didn't have that type of experience because I didn't really take an interest in theirs and they didn't really take an interest in mine. So it was kind of... And so I dropped out and I went to the streets for a long time. And that's where I got a different type of education. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually um, I, w- I went back to school. And, um, you know, I realized that even though so many people in my neighborhood and my family were street people, even though, like, you know, I had like a, a small, teeny bit of success, I realized street life wasn't for me. So um, I went to college and I was fortunate enough to graduate and fall in love with writing and um, graduate again and get an agent and and tell my story. And now, you know, I'm a professor at University of Baltimore. Um, I'm editor at large for Salon Magazine. I I just produced a film, Will Smith and Jada Pinkins film that they did in Baltimore. So I got a chance to work on that. Wow. Um, I'm working on a film with HBO right now about the gun trace task force and police violence in Baltimore. Like I said, I've been on tour with these books for like the past four years, over 300 stops to schools and colleges and jails and youth programs and community centers and things like that. I have my own TV show that I'm writing in development that I'm actually about to go to L.A. soon um, for pitch meetings. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Writing a YA novel now that I'm excited about. And I have this new book, We Speak for Ourselves, coming out. And getting the opportunity to give away a thousand copies of my book to um, Baltimore City School students. That's amazing. And that's it's, it's amazing to me because I've, I've already been fortunate enough to give away thousands. Like this, the cook up in my first two books are like the most read books in Baltimore City mm-hmm. public schools um, to the point where teachers, like multiple teachers from different schools told me that they can't keep them in. Like students steal them. They want to keep <laughs> them. They want to own them. And I know that the more words you know, studies show that the more words you know, the further you go in life. Mm-hmm. And if you grow up in a house with books, you're more likely to do better even if nobody reads them. So a lot of our students don't have libraries at home. I didn't have a library when I was coming mm-hmm. up. So if I can donate books to schools and the teachers can use them and the kids can read them and learn how to think critically and get excited about telling their own stories, then they can keep the book. Then I'm going to visit the school and meet you and talk to you, do a workshop and have fun with you. And you get to build your own library. That's, you know, you, you get a chance to be successful in your career and you get a chance to make a difference and, and it feels good. So I'm I'm excited about the new book and and to be giving away a thousand copies. Sorry if I took too long to answer No, that, not that, at that all. Question. That's great. I, I promise the next one won't be that long. <laughs> the next one will be like, sure. <laughs> so I'm interested, speaking of the cook-up, I've been reading that book, and I think it's the way it's written that must appeal so much to kids that are maybe in that same situation growing up. Um, right in the beginning, I found it so compelling, just even the first paragraph you write, it just kind of sucks you right in. I just want to read part of it. These are the first words that you have out of this book. I saw bullets rip through the faces of adolescents. I saw mothers abandon their kids. I saw fathers go out for milk to never return. I saw kids turn into killers, cops steal, and grandparents raise infants around here. I saw kids slap spit out of adults. I saw the devil. I saw dude shake dude's hand before whipping out his gun and making dude put his hands up. We go through midlife crises at 15 around here. I saw friends kill friends. I saw friends kill friends and then attend their wake. I saw teachers tell kids that they'd die like their parents or siblings. What does hope look like? It's really powerful. What has been the reaction, especially from students, that you were able to kind of bravely tell a story like this, and it's a story that they can relate to so much? 
So for outsiders and people who are not really familiar with their world, that passage gives them the rules to this game you're about to enter. Mm -hmm. Everybody doesn't really have like the same skill set, the same set of resources, the same reality in general. For students, it's a bonus because they rarely get to see themselves or people who have experiences similar to them in the literature that they're given. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that relatable information is more non-intimidating, but these kids aren't getting it, especially like you in a black school, you, you're normally only getting like um, books that don't really speak. When I was coming up, they gave us Ben Carson and Gifted Hands. Nobody read it. Like everybody threw it in the trash. And you think the logic is Ben Carson's a black guy. Sure. He's a pediatric neurosurgeon. You know, we all know now Ben Carson is not a nice person. We know that Ben Carson is totally okay and fine with running HUD and and knowing that people are dying from lead all over this country. Like, mm -hmm. we know he's he's totally comfortable with that. He can laugh and smile and joke about it. So we knew from the literature in his book a long time ago that he didn't care about people, right? Um, and this is what you give us. Or you give us Mark Twain, books like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And like, you know, when I became a reader, I started understanding why those books were assigned. But when I was young, you know, we were playing basketball and we we're riding dirt bikes and we we're trying to meet girls and we we're running around trying to explore and we we're feeling ourselves. Nothing in that book is going to say anything to us that's going to help us with that journey. We feel like our stories are invalid because they just don't exist. Mm -hmm. The teacher may tear them down. The administrators may tear them down. And we're just out here. And I guess the easiest way to put it is um, black people make up about 13 percent of the population in this country, but are represented under one percent in literature. Mm -hmm. So that's strike one. Strike two is um, you think about a little girl trying to read a book about a princess. and She's like six, seven years old. That princess is not going to have hair like her. It's not going to have a nose like her. So she feels like she's not even beautiful before she even gets the opportunity to start even thinking about how these things work. Mm -hmm. So that's strike two. And that's the reality that we give a student. So when I go to schools and when I go to jails and I talk to all of these people and I say, hey, raise your hand if you hate books. They can't wait to throw their hands in the air. Yeah. like They almost throw their arms out of the socket mm -hmm. because they feel like books aren't for them. I felt like that. Um, my older brother's they felt like that. Like my dad's whole generation, they felt like that. So you're not telling me that it's all just like, you know, if you're black, it means you hate books. Or if you come from a certain place, it means you hate books. This is just the reality that we're given because we don't get a chance to see ourselves in literature. So when you write a passage like that and you see yourself in it, it makes you want to continue. It's like, wait, I know that neighborhood. Wait, I know that experience. Wait, that voice is not the slang that we use, but it's something that sounds familiar. Let me get to the end of it. And when you get through the book, you're taking in that information. You're understanding somebody's story. You're seeing those vulnerabilities that a person, you know, people from the outside are called super predators, but, but we're not. We're people in messed up situations. Mm -hmm. So you see the mistakes we make. You see the pain or you get a chance to experience the pain we feel. You get a chance to look at yourself through that lens and understand the pain you feel. You get a chance to share your story. And you have that experience and it, and it means something and, it, and it's valid. So, um, you know, Curry Graham at Patterson and um, just teachers all over Baltimore City is like, yo, we're thankful that you're able to help get these books donated to the school. We're thankful that you spend your own money on the books. And it's not a good thing, but I mean, they're not stealing the crucible. You know what I'm saying? They, you know, <laughs> yep. Things Fall Apart is one of my favorite books, but they're not stealing that. Mm -hmm. So if I can create this content that gets them excited about reading and telling their story, I know I've done my job. And the cool thing about the B-side is I gave a talk at NAF Middle School, at middle, NAF Middle School to eighth graders on a Tuesday. And then Wednesday through Friday, I was giving the same talk about the same content at Harvard. 
So it's like wow. the language is simple enough for an eighth grader in Baltimore City Public Schools to understand, but complex and nuanced and funny enough for like somebody at an Ivy League school to connect with. So again, it's making the world smaller in like a different way. The Free to Be More podcast is sponsored by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Stream your favorite TV shows and the latest music albums with Hoopla Digital. All you need is a Pratt Library card to access some of the latest media without leaving your home. You can download ebooks with no wait time. Check out Hoopla Digital at prattlibrary.org. Do you feel like there are other writers out there that are doing what you're doing now? Do you feel like um, kids are starting to have more of those options with someone like Nick Stone and Jason Reynolds out there putting out books like that? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm definitely like really inspired by by uh, Dear Martin, by Nick Stone. Like, I, I thought that was a beautiful book, and um, Jason Reynolds has given me like more advice and like and showing love to my career like crazy. And what even what he does with the YA novels is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a student of Jason Reynolds. Um, he would he would love that too. He would rub that in my face. He would rub that in my face. He's we'll that guy. Sure he hears yeah, this. he's that guy. But <laughs> but yeah, I think we're part of. You know, and mind you, none of my books, so my first two books, I didn't even think about YA. I just thought about writing, just writing experiences that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing that is YA about those books is I decided to write in an accessible language, Mm -hmm. like, because I know that, like, you know, some of my closest friends, and I'm not even trying to drag them, but they, like, third grade reading level. So, like, I want them to be able to understand the content. Like, I thought about that. Like, you know, I want to write something that people who love books can love, but at the same time, I want my friends to be able to play, too. Yeah. So I thought about that. With my new book, We Speak for Ourselves, I decided to make that in the same accessible language. And easy reading is not easy writing, but <laughs> but I, I, deci- imagine, yeah. I decided to make it in an accessible language, and I decided to, like, make sure that the book had no profanity in it because— um, you know, some some educators don't really understand that students use more profanity than adults. Yeah. They still think that they're, you know, a part of something pure, which is another conversation. But just so we can just not even have that conversation, I took all the profanity out the book mm-hmm. just so that they can have it and they can use it. And um, it gives you like a basic understanding of, um, you know, if I want to make a difference, this is what I can do. It doesn't always have to be about me standing on a podium in front of a thousand people. I can just be a good person in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. If I got a job, I can help somebody get a job. If I know how to do resumes, um, I can help somebody create their resume. If I know, if I can got a car, I can give you a ride to work or let you hold $20 so you can get to this place or that place or teach you how to tie a tie. Anything that somebody needs to be able to get from A to B, um, with the purpose of them bettering themselves and creating a better life for themselves in a positive way, you can help. And if you can help, then you're more important than somebody on some big news platform with a hashtag because these yep. people don't come. They don't come where we at. Mm-hmm. They're not coming on these blocks. They don't even think about these blocks. They speak. They try to speak for yes. these blocks. Or like, they've been there one day. <laughs> I heard a celebrity say, um, yeah, you know, because... At the end of the day, as black people, we don't need reparations. We need free college. And I'm like, dog, you rich already. And I already went to school, so I can't have a check. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Give me my <laughs> give me give me give me my money. Like, you don't take your check if you know yeah, what I'm saying. You, you can get you, yours back. You keep yours. You know what I mean? If, if uh I think Elizabeth Warren, Andy Yang, um, I forget the lady's name. She's Oprah's spiritual advisor. She was like, yo, I'm going to set aside $100 billion. And I'm like, oh, okay. Where can I sign up the campaign for you? Because yeah, exactly. <laughs> you leave your, but I don't need you to tell me. what. How, sure. do, you, how do you know what I need? Mm-hmm. It's like me. I, I just met you. Yep. It's like me coming here telling you you need more kale. Mm-hmm. Who am I? You could. You might have <laughs> ate. You probably ate 
seventy dollars worth of kale this week already. I don't know, but it's not it's not fair for me to assume, you know. Yeah, no. So we speak for ourselves as the new book. Um, it has a different tone and a different kind of message. The writing feels obviously very the same, but why was it so important for you to write this book specifically, especially with what's gone on in Baltimore in the past few years? So one day I was on television and um I had got in the in the car and she said, "When you going? Sometimes when you go on big network TV, they send like a limo, mm-hmm. like to pick you up." So I got in the car and I'm riding back home, and I get like a um, like a, a text from one of the producers, like, "Oh, thank you so much. That was so cool. Here's a link. You can post, share, whatever." Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the link, and it says D. Watkins, Black Lives Matter activist, and I'm like, "Oh, wait." Like that's I don't work for them. Like and that's not fair to them because I don't know the ideology or like sure. or what they do. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way. Like I've said it before, but I really don't say it because it's I'm not telling you I matter. Like if you don't know I matter, I, you not it doesn't to me it doesn't mean you're gonna know because I said it. So I'm like yo like why would they put that? And then I asked the producer like yo what's up with that? And he mm-hmm. was like oh well we just that's what we thought. You know, you represent it. And I'm like, nah, bruh. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, I do think black people matter, but I, I don't, I'm not gonna wear it on a t shirt. So, yeah. um, and then as I travel and I want a bunch of places, I realized that being a black person and being frustrated with the system and being frustrated with um, how people who look like me are treated in general, you instantly get put in these certain categories or boxes. And like, I got homies that, do so much community work and they never even heard of Black Lives Matter because they're not even on black Twitter. They're not even on, they're not in these groups. They don't, you know, they teaching you how to like, you know, how to do the paperwork so you can get in school and get a license to drive trucks, but they're not walking around talking about microaggressions. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And it's not even like a knock to the people who do that, but it's like, why we always got to be put in the box mm-hmm. and why we got to be the same thing. Um, you got whole groups of people out here, you know, buying shoes for groups of people who don't even need shoes. They need coats, but you don't listen to them and you're so disconnected that you think you know what they want Mm -hmm. and you give them what you think, you know, and then you pat yourself on the back like, yeah, I'm making a difference. So that book is about, you know, if you want to show love, that's cool. Get in there, listen, get your hands dirty, have some relationships, be a resource. Don't just think that you can tweet at a white person telling them to acknowledge their privilege for eight hours and then come outside like, oh my God, I made the world a better place. Yeah. Because you're probably talking to a bot, and you know what I'm saying, in Russia sure, somewhere. Yeah, like you, you, might, you might not even be talking to a real person and it don't matter. Like I was telling my homie, he's a white boy, I was telling him, you know, you don't have to acknowledge your privilege every time you bump into me in a coffee shop. I don't care, dog. Like, White privilege is not transferable. You can't be like, hey, I want to advance you 47 white privilege points. You carry those <laughs> with you and you and you give them to the next cop yeah. that pulls you over. Like, all right, bet. You know it exists. I know it exists. That's cool. What do you want to, like, you want to meddle with something? Like, I don't know. Like, but what will help or what did help is when he was showing some little homies that I know about being a graphic designer. He's a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. How this career works, how you can make money off of it, how you can play with computers and do cool stuff and help people with events or create a cartoon or just do so many cool things for one career. Now, that's way more valuable than you grabbing me, shaking me up, saying, I have privilege. I know it. And I want you to know that I know that I have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not making the change, really, that you can make an not impact. Not for me. Maybe it makes somebody else feel better. But for me, again, on Twitter. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe it's good on Twitter. You know, you get to be woke. Con- congratulations. Mm. Like, Take that to the bank. <laughs> I liked um, you wrote about 
sort of people having individual voices. So in the book you wrote, I'm just a regular guy, a voice in the middle of a sea of voices that don't seem to matter to most, which is why we may forever be misrepresented unless we speak for ourselves. I thought that was so interesting because everyone has their own experience. And so you're just voicing yours, but, you know, people started calling you the voice of Black America. And that was a lot and not necessarily, you didn't really feel like that was True. It's not. I don't think it's fair because it's like, who's the voice of gay America? Yeah, exactly. Who's the voice of little people America? Who's the voice of white America? Like, can we all get together and, like, <laughs> touch hands and it'll glow? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, who are these people? Like, so why does, you know, I got love for everybody. I don't walk around having beefs and all that. But I will say, like, you know, a lot of people take these titles and they run with them. They run with them. Like, sure. they, think, they think that, you know what? They believe it. I, I am the voice of black America. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ask me what they need. You know what I mean? I'll tell you what they need. You know, like, and it's like, nah, dog, like, you don't know what I need because you're not even going to step foot in some of the places where I'll be at. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we might be having a conversation. Like, I mean, <laughs> Jay-Z had a bigger impact on my life than Dr. King. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if we keep it a buck, like, yep. you know, I saw this comedian. He was like, yo, I know, like, I'm not alone. He was like, I know like one line from the I Have a Dream speech, but I can quote every Jay-Z song that was ever yep. created. <laughs> and it's not even a bad thing. It's where you coming from, mm-hmm. how you assessing this information. Yeah. What are you getting? What type of vibe you want? The Free to Be More podcast is sponsored by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Now featuring Canopy, a free video streaming service available with your library card. Stream over 30,000 titles with the click of a button. Learn more at prattlibrary.org. You touch on a lot of um, social issues, social concerns. One is the relationship between the police and the community. Obviously, that's been tough for a very, very long time. In the past few years since Freddie Gray, do you feel like there's any progress? Um, People blindly trust police officers, and I don't really think that's right. I think police officers should adhere to a rating system like Uber. Like, if a police officer knocks on your door, you should be able to, like, scan his forehead and see if he has, like, a one star. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you know, because it's the only profession where all you got to do is be able to run a certain speed, pass a little fitness test, take a little written test, and then, like, instantly you, you're caught. You're given a, the ability to take someone's life or their freedom. Mm-hmm. Instantly. It's like almost just add water and stir. And I don't really think it's a fair thing. I've had bad experiences with police officers. Some people have had good experiences with police officers. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take away the, from the people who had good experiences, but you're not going to ignore mine. Sure. And you need to understand that a lot of people aren't being policed the same way in this country. And that's a problem. I know I've been in spots where <laughs> police officers knew who I was and they were nice and they were friendly. And they were like, yo, are you are you OK? And then I remember situations where I was treated really badly by them. So, like, even, like, with the idea of being just a person from East Baltimore to a person that has, like, some type of, I don't know, whatever, notoriety, mm-hmm. you know, the whole vibe just changes. Yeah. The whole vibe just changes. And even that's not fair. Like, you know, no, I'm not going to say crack me in the head like I was in, living in poverty, but— I'm just saying, like, it's just so obvious and it's kind of messed up. Mm-hmm. I saw you uh, the other day. You were on um, a TV on a town hall where the new police commissioner was. I guess what kind of advice would you give to him about 
where Baltimore needs to go to improve that relationship? So one thing I will say is that I don't know anything about being a cop. So I definitely, like, would never jump out there and try to tell this man how to do his job. What I will say is that there's a huge disconnect, and that disconnect is not going to be fixed by giving them, like, some pamphlets to read and some mandatory race training once a year. That connection is going to be changed when they are forced to spend real time in the communities that they serve, and they can't do it for Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. So if I had his job, I would make it a requirement. Like, even if you don't live in Baltimore, you should, like, be required to move into the city within, like, three years. You got three years to locate. I don't care if your kid's in school. Mm -hmm. You want to take money? You want to take tax money, you know, from this city? You're not going to be giving it to nowhere else but this city. Mm -hmm. Um, I would give them incentives and, like, discounts. Um, I would fix some of these vacant houses up into, like, swanky police family pads, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, but I would, they would be real community members. They, you know, I saw police officers, you know, things are different now because of body cameras. Like, by, with the body sure. cameras, police officers, they polite. Like, they change. Like, they, you know, like, one of them kept calling me bro. He was like, you know, it was weird because he was, you know, he was like, he was like this little round white dude, but he kept saying, hey, come on, bro, bro, bro. And I'm like, okay, okay, my man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, they change. Like, they change. You know, because um, the smart ones, sm- not the ones who, like, forget to cut their body camera off um, and then plant drugs on somebody, Panero, Officer Panero, um, who actually, the kid went to jail. The kid went to jail, and but he was able to come home. The officer who actually planted the drugs got no jail time. He got, like, community service. Mm. So, um, you know, I guess, you know, he committed the crime, but the, the person, the victim got more time. Anyway, but I would say police officers need to be a part of the community through mentorship, through bringing back the POW leagues, through owning houses, you know, like they need to understand the culture that they're policing. Because if you don't, then um, it leads to conflict. That's why Darren Wilson can kill Michael Brown after an action that went on for a couple seconds. You know what I'm saying? That's why Tamir Rice was popped after like 20 seconds. You know what I mean? Like you have these ideas and you have these fears it's the term implicit bias. Like, you carry this stuff around mm-hmm. and you don't know how to interact with these people and you get scared when you see them. And so many of them are unarmed. Like, so many of them sure. are unarmed that it's just, like, ridiculous. And it's so bad that police officers, you know, we... So what we know, what the evidence showed, what wasn't fully reported, but partially reported, but what the evidence showed, it's out there, you can find it. We know that Freddie Gray died from a shallow diving accident. We know that he was thrown into the van head first or during the second stop. So people think it happened on the first stop when he put his knee in his back. But it wasn't the first stop because they brought him out for the second stop. They threw him in head first. So we know he died from a shallow diving accident. We know this. We know that if a person isn't arrested, even if this person has a knife, if this person is fighting somebody, if this person did anything, we know that once you get this person in custody, they're not supposed to die on a trip from their neighborhood to Central Booker. We know that. We know this is the basic rights. No, almost no police officer would say, yo, that was wrong. All they can say is blue lives matter. Cops work hard. We're the hardest working people in the world. We do this, we do that. It's rough out here, you don't understand. Nobody could say, like, take away the profession. Just act like you work at Giants or something. Act like it was your brother or your son, or your cousin, somebody in your family, you know that if you get the cuffs on somebody, we're not talking about y'all scrapping in the alley. Because Freddie Brown, he won like 140, 150 pounds. He was light. He was a little guy. 
So we're not talking about a fight in the alley. We're not talking about a, a chase that went off of blocks. We're not talking about gunplay. We're talking about a person you caught that you never had a reason for stopping but other than eye contact, but a person you caught put cuffs on dying and you can't sit there and say that's wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you can't say that's wrong. Like, I had legit, like, people who was like, and I don't even do Facebook like that, but I had got off of Facebook because my, my mother on that. But um, <laughs> but it's legit people that's like cops that was on my Facebook that I went to high school and stuff like that. They unfriended me. They got rid. They got like, yo, no, because I can't. I can't take that ride. And I said, that's crazy, because it's that simple. You know that that man was not supposed to die being transported to Central Booking. And the best thing you can come up with, yeah, he was arrested 18 times. Yeah, because the war on drugs has, has failed and most of them charges never ever turned into anything because it was just harassment, BS, and how officers benefit from mass arrest, paperwork, overtime, court fees. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I lock you up a thousand times. My check's going to look good <laughs> for nothing. When it's like real murderers and real rapists and real criminals out there, try not investigating crimes. Oh, open container. Oh, we made eye contact. Oh, he rode a bike on the curve. This is how y'all policing out here. So not to go off on a tangent, but that's just diff it's just strange for me that people can't sit here and see that like you're not supposed to die and they mm -hmm. can't say it. Like they can't say it. Mm -hmm. They won't say it. Yeah. And a lot of this is in the new book. I think you really break it down. It's really interesting the way you explain it. I want to take a quick turn to about how you reach out to young people, because you do say in the book that when you were young, you wouldn't really listen to anyone that was saying anything positive. You were listening to the people that were making money, the people that had power in your neighborhood. So how do you kind of combat that with young people now when you're trying to be a mentor to them? How do you make them listen? So when I was coming up, a lot of people used to speak down on us. Like, they wasn't trying to, like, give us, like, advice on how to be successful. You know, they couldn't tell us how to get through college because nobody really went. Mm -hmm. um, There's a couple of older guys who used to be like, yo, you're going to get a job at Bethlehem still or something, or coal or something that don't exist. Mm -hmm. So, like, <laughs> so, like, <laughs> now this guy used to always, he used to always tell me and my friends, he used to be like, I'm telling you, you go to high school, get your diploma, get you a job at Bethlehem still. Yep. You can afford to buy a house, have a stay-at-home wife, pay for, your, pay for your yeah. kids' college, and have a girlfriend on the side. And we were little kids, so we're like a girlfriend on the side. What do we what? need that for if we huh? have a wife? And he's like, <laughs> you know, I ain't with that. But um, <laughs> but he used to tell us to us at like six years old. Mm -hmm. So you grow up, and it's like, okay, where's Bethlehem still? Where's yeah. coal? Mm -hmm. uh, anybody see a Where'd piece? I never go? even saw a piece of coal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and Trump says it's out there, but I don't. I never saw it. Um, he said it's coming back. To Ohio or something. So um, what I do is I put it in context because that's something that I didn't have. So some people told me throughout my life, yo, you got to read, you got to go to school. Mm -hmm. But they didn't go to school and they didn't read. So sure. it's like you're telling me this, but you're not doing it. Not or you're it. telling me this and you're not saying it. Yo, if you read, you'll learn how to think critically. If you learn how to think critically, you'll make better decisions. Better decisions means you won't be buying a 2010 Mercedes for 100000 It means you won't be looking at a subprime mortgage loan and signing that paperwork. It means that you won't be going to a payday loan place, you know what I'm saying, yeah. when you're trying to get a loan for something. It means that you're going to fully analyze and be able to navigate these communities full of people that are like really hungry to rip you off and take money out your pocket, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to function, make good decisions, um, understand why you shouldn't do some things that are illegal, understand how to navigate multiple worlds as a thinker. So I let the kids know that reading is as important as water. And this is where I was at before I started reading. 
this is where I was at after I started reading. Mm-hmm. These are some books that I like. These are some books that you might like. Um, if you don't like these books, think about your interests. Um, if you like basketball, read Sports Illustrated. Read Hoops Mag or Dime Magazine or something. If you like football, read ESPN or something like that. If you like, you know, hip hop, there's a bunch of people writing about some of your favorite artists. See what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. See what their influences are. See how they got where they are. But do something so that you can exercise your brain so that you can, you know, be able to develop into a thinker. And if you do that you'll be better so it's like it's not just me blindly telling you to do something it's me putting it in context and showing you the results and Mm -hmm. then letting you know that yo i've messed up i've done some bad things i've done some wrong things you know but i was fortunate enough to change my life and it's mainly because i started acquiring so much information and then using that to try to better myself Mm -hmm. what does it mean to you now when you hear from a young person that says i read your book and it changed things for me i mean that's got to be really powerful. Every time it feels brand new because Uh it's something that I didn't know I was, you know, I didn't know that was the mission at first. But then when I really, really, really got into understanding that people started knowing me for my story more than my actual writing, it kind of refocused my career. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, nah, you're not just going to know me because I was in the paper or you're not just going to talk to me about seeing me on some type of show. But we're going to talk about the work and we're going to talk about how you are a part of this work. And we're going to talk about um, how you can utilize people like me or Jason Reynolds or Kondwani Fidel or whoever to elevate this work. Like, mm-hmm. this is what we're going to do. And, um, and we got a lot of work to do. Like, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of books have been donated and given to Baltimore City Public School students. Um, hundreds of trips have been made. Hundreds of workshops have been taught. And it's just like the tip of the iceberg. Like, you know, icebergs are pretty deep when you get below sea level. Yep. So, like, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of it's a lot of work to do. It's just a start. Mm-hmm. You've had this sort of unwavering commitment to Baltimore. You've had the ability to go go anywhere else. What is it that keeps you here, and what is it that inspires you and motivates you in this city? I think when reading becomes part of the culture of our young people, something that they want to do, something that they run towards, um, really being the city that reads in real life. Like, not just a slogan. On a bench I think, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, not that I'm knocking that, but once we really get that and we're able to have that, then I can, you know, try my arm at another place. But I probably, it probably wouldn't be in America. I would probably live, like, in a different country just to see what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't even know if I'm going to make it there because, again, um, some of the stuff I want to accomplish, I don't think there's enough years left in my life. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that doesn't make me exempt from trying, but once reading becomes like a culture and people start to value their stories as a culture, because it used to be like, like valuing your, your story used to be, used to be like, you know, and it still is in a lot of places, um, it's currency, but, you know, I want to help bring that back and do my part to help with that. And once that happens, then I can go in you know, try something else, like, in a different place. Try, like, relax and all that stuff. <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> it's a big iceberg, that's for sure. I'm not going away with iceberg. <laughs> Global woman, it's good. Penguins look sad. Like, you see them? It's like, I don't know. It's like a skinny polar bear. It's like, true. people need to listen true. to AOC, man. She be on Congress. She be trying to tell them. Yeah. She try to tell them. They don't, you know, they hate on her, but, you know, <laughs> she's going to be president one day. So, So who inspires you? I'm inspired by so many different people, but a lot of times they're not like big mainstream people. You know, 
And I'm not even just saying this because Nipsey Hussle just passed, but mm-hmm. like I've been a fan for a long time and mm-hmm. I've knew about a lot of that community work for a long time. And his accessibility was just amazing because, you know, he's one day he's on television and the next day he's in a neighborhood. And I do that. I don't I'm not on bigger stages as him, but like he's in a neighborhood and he's trying to teach people how to fish so that they can take care of themselves. You know what I mean? So um he's a big inspiration. And then um Older people who figured out a way to find happiness, who've been here for 60 years and 70 years and all that, and, you know, they still have the ability to smile by the time fall comes around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everybody's yeah. smiling on New Year's. <laughs> Not too many people smiling yeah. by April with tax season. And then even <laughs> less people who by the time you get to fall, but people who realize, you know, who are still able to crack a smile when autumn rolls around. I'm inspired by them as well. Um, I'm also inspired by people who, who work really hard. If my fiance takes on a task, like she'll start at like five o'clock, sometimes PM, and then like, you'll check on her at like at 4 AM and she's still clicking, <laughs> she's still clicking away. Yeah. She's still, you know, she's still at it. And it's like no coffee, no, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I have to like force feed her water <laughs> <laughs> so that she can be alive. But um, just hard workers, like people who work hard and, and people who give, like, I, you know, people who are able to give, I'm always inspired by that as well. So it's, I'm inspired by a lot. Um, I have to find constant inspiration because um, it fuels me to try to be the best person that I can be. Mm-hmm. The book is We Speak For Ourselves. Dee Watkins, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. The Free to Be More podcast is supported by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Need to brush up on your computer skills? Check out the Pratt Centers for Technology Training. From internet basics to advanced Excel and everything in between, the Pratt offers free computer classes at eight locations around the city. You can even get help using your tablet and smartphone. For more information, go to prattlibrary.org. You're free to be more at the Pratt. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.